got your Bibles and I hope that you do, turn to the book of Isaiah. This morning we begin a new season in the life of our church, really. It's been a while since we've taken on a, a book of Scripture this long, this daunting. I've been looking forward to this sermon series for quite a while. The book of Isaiah is not only daunting in its size, over 25,000 uh, words, over 66 or 66 chapters, more chapters than any other book in the Old Testament besides Psalms. But it's also daunting in its style and content. It's a book of prophecy, but at times it's also a narrative. We'll find historical markers along the way that will help us track along with the progress of Jewish history. But at other times, there will be no historical markers whatsoever. And so it'll be a challenge for us to determine whether the prophecy has to do with Isaiah's day or a time that is future for Isaiah and historical for us or a time that is also future for us. But despite the fact that it is daunting in both its length and its content, there is no escape in the reality that it is one of the most important books in the Bible. Isaiah is quoted in the New Testament more than twice as much as any other major prophet and more than all of the minor prophets combined. Gleason Archer says in his survey of the Old Testament that deeper Christological insights are to be found in this book than anywhere else in the Old Testament. And it's for that reason that many Bible scholars refer to the book of Isaiah as the fifth gospel. Another called it the bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I think we'll see that as we make our way through this book. One pastor that I read about who had been preaching sermons verse by verse expositionally in the church, in the local church for 42 years, he said after preaching through Isaiah that it had been the single greatest experience of teaching the Bible in his life. And so I'm excited. I'm also nervous. I don't want to lead you astray as we unpack these prophecies. I'm humbled by the task that's in front of us, but mostly I'm excited and I'm pumped about what God is going to teach us and even more so what God is going to do in us and in our church as a result of both what we learn and apply from the book of Isaiah. And so I'm eager to get started. You ready? Let's dive in. Let's read chapter one of Isaiah. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. 
From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate, overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifice, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of burying them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat of the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord is spoken. How the beautiful city has become a whore. She who was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murders. Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come before them. Therefore the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, Ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lye, and remove all your alloy, and I will restore your judges as at the first, and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed by justice, and those in her who repent by righteousness. But rebels and sinners shall be broken together, and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. For they shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired, and you shall blush of the gardens that you have chosen. For you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers, and like a garden without water. And the strong shall become tender, and his work a spark, and both of them shall burn together with none to quench them. Let's pray. Father, as we read this passage, this chapter, we are filled with gratefulness that you have spoken to us in your word that you have given us this book and you have given us this book of isaiah within it to show us who you are to show us who we are and father we ask that you would attend to the reading of your word and the preaching of your word by your spirit 
to drive this word deep into our souls and hearts so that we would not walk away unchanged, but that we would walk away transformed by your grace to look more like your son Jesus for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I thought about doing an overview sermon this morning so that we could kind of get the big picture before diving into the weeds. But I opted not to do that for three reasons. First of all, although Isaiah is a singular vision, and it is a singular vision, that word for vision in verse 1 is in the singular. It's a singular vision, but it's also a compiled vision. And this vision is compiled throughout Isaiah's life as a prophet, which we'll see in a moment, lasts over 60 years. And over those 60 years, because of that, there are distinct sections of this book. And each of the sections of this book will have its own context. And so instead of spending one Sunday to try to give you a a contextual framework for the whole book, all 66 chapters, we're going to be building that contextual framework as we go. But the second reason why I didn't want to spend an entire sermon giving an overview is because this first section, chapters 1 through 5, do that itself. Chapters 1 through 5 are kind of a preface to the rest of the book. If you're familiar with Isaiah at all, you might recall that Isaiah's call to ministry comes in chapter 6. But we have five whole chapters of prophecy that come before that. And so according to my study, chapters 1 through 5 are, are not prophecies that he received prior to his call to ministry in chapter 6, but rather they are summary prophecies that are representative of the book as a whole. And so they serve really as a preface for the rest of the book. One of the things that we'll note in chapters 1 through 5 is that there are no historical markers whatsoever in these first five chapters. Beginning in chapter 6, we're going to see historical markers, things that are happening in Isaiah's life as he gives prophecies, and that'll help us to determine where we are in the story. But none of that happens in chapters 1 through 5. But rather, what we have in the first five chapters are themes that begin to repeat over and over throughout the book. Themes like the holiness of God, the sinfulness of man, the vanity of idol worship, the need for God's people to return to their God and be rescued, and the focus on the nations. And all of this is going to come out for us in these first five chapters. And so over the next five weeks, we're going to get a pretty good picture of the book as a whole as we look at this first preface to the book. And then the third reason why I'm not doing an overview this morning is because we actually get a mini overview in verse 1. In verse 1, we get the who, the what, and the when of this book. So let's look at that. First, the who. Verse 1 begins, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos. And so the writer is Isaiah, and he is the son of this man named Amos. We don't know a whole lot about Amos. Rabbinic tradition tells us that he is the brother of Amaziah. And Amaziah was the father of and the king before Uzziah, who is the king during the time in which Isaiah begins to prophesy. And so if that's true, that tells us that Isaiah is a bit of an insider. He's a part of the royal family. And so he's speaking to us from a place of privilege privilege. 
in the royal family of the southern kingdom of Judah. But his name means the Lord saves. And so although he is from royalty himself, his very name means Yahweh or Jehovah saves, which in reality is a very fitting summary of the entire book. The Lord is the one who saves. He is the only hope for the salvation of God's people. Another part of the who here is the audience to whom the vision is for. He says, the the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. And so what happens here in the book of Isaiah begins to happen, begins to unfold about 200 years after the united kingdom of Israel splits into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. So that's when he begins prophesying, and he's prophesying specifically to the southern kingdom of Judah and its capital, Jerusalem. So that's the who. What about the what? This is a vision from God. He says, the vision of Isaiah the son of Amos, which he saw. The vision, the hazon which he saw, hazah. The hazon which he hazad. It's the same root word in the Hebrew in both places. The Hebrew word for vision, hazon. We'll see that 35 times in the book of Isaiah. And every single one of those 35 occurrences, it refers to truth being imparted by the Lord to his people through Isaiah. And so this is truth that is given by God to Isaiah by way of supernatural divine revelation. But this divine revelation is referred to as a vision which he saw. And so, though we may be tempted to treat this the same as, as one of Paul's letters, we can't read and, 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 and study and dissect and interpret the book of Isaiah in the same manner in which we would seek to do so with an epistle from the Apostle Paul or a narrative from Dr. Luke like we did with the book of Acts. These visions are meant less to be dissected and examined and more to be seen with our mind's eye. And so just bear that in mind as we look at these prophecies over and over again. We're to see them unfold. These visions are going to unfold for us more like a screenplay and less like an academic lecture. That doesn't mean that we're not meant to try to understand all of the metaphors and figurative references that we're going to see all throughout the book, but that the collective meaning of these metaphors and figurative references are best apprehended by seeing them unfold together rather than trying to understand each of them individually. That is to say that we'll understand the meaning of these prophecies best If we can resist the urge to always put everything under a microscope in a lab and rather just allow our mind's eye to see these visions unfold as Isaiah tells us about the vision that he saw. And then finally, the when. Verse 1 says, The vision of Isaiah the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Now, these were 
real, actual kings of the southern kingdom of Judah that we could, could verify by uh, third-party historical accounts. They reigned over the southern kingdom of Judah from the temple there in Jerusalem from about 740 B.C., to about 680 BC. So about again about 60 years and this is the time frame in which Isaiah prophesied. And as you can probably imagine if you took something that a young pastor said at the outset of his preaching ministry and compared that to something that he said in a sermon 60 years later it would sound different. It, it might look different. It might have a different style, a different focus even. And the same is certainly true as we encounter this compiled vision from Isaiah that's compiled over his 60 years. Now, the, the great world empire that was at play during this time frame in world history was the Assyrian Empire. But at least at the outset of this time period, Assyria was more of a sleeping giant. But as the book of Isaiah unfolds, the sleeping, uh, the sleeping giant will awaken and will first defeat the northern kingdom of Israel and then will threaten the southern kingdom of Judah, which is where Isaiah lives and ministers. But for now, at the outset of his ministry, there had been relative peace for God's people for quite a long time. Yes, there were enemies that were lurking nearby but God's people had been relatively comfortable there in the promised land maybe too comfortable as we'll see they had begun in the midst of relative peace and prosperity and comfort they had begun to drift from their God and his ways and so Isaiah comes on this on the scene to show them the folly of that drifting and to wake them up from their spiritual lethargy. Because their enemies would not be sleeping giants forever. And their God, the Lord, is not their heavenly sugar daddy. To be placated with sporadic, half-hearted worship when they just needed his help. Nor is he their spiritual vending machine to go to when they need a spiritual snack as a matter of last resort. No, he is the Lord God of heaven and earth. He is the God of Israel, the creator and sustainer of the universe, and the one to whom they owed their very existence. And he loved them. And he loved them enough to send them a servant who would point them back to him. And that's who Isaiah was for them. And you know, the spiritual climate of the church in America today, the spiritual climate among us as believers in this time period in which we live, is very similar to the spiritual climate that existed in the southern kingdom of Judah in this day. We have enjoyed relative peace for a good time now. Yes, there are enemies that are lurking nearby, but the church has enjoyed Relative comfort, perhaps too much comfort, because we too, the church today, have begun to drift from God and His ways, and we need 
the words of Isaiah to show us the folly of that drifting and to wake us up from our spiritual lethargy. Because our enemies today won't be sleeping giants forever. And our God is neither a heavenly sugar daddy or a spiritual vending machine for us. He is also for us the Lord God of heaven and earth. He is our God, the one and only God to whom we owe our very existence. And so we, we need this servant Isaiah to point us as a people back to God and in particular to point us as he will to another servant, one who came from heaven to live among us and to die in our place in order to rescue us from the penalty of our own sin and rebellion against God. And this is what Isaiah will do for us if we will pay attention as he speaks. He'll wake us up from our spiritual slumber and usher us back to God through the means of another suffering servant, the promised one from the seed of the woman through whom we have the only hope of being justified, redeemed, and forgiven by grace through faith in his name, the name of Jesus. So that's the who, that's the what, and that's the when. And I think that's enough context for us to dive into the meat of chapter 1. The flow of chapter 1 really vacillates between Isaiah speaking and the Lord speaking. It's all part of the vision that God gave to Isaiah It's all inspired by God. But sometimes Isaiah is foretelling the vision that God gave him, that he saw. And sometimes Isaiah is directly quoting what God himself said. And so it goes back and forth between Isaiah and the Lord speaking in this chapter. And there are some elements to which only Isaiah speaks, some to which only the Lord speaks. And there's one in particular that we'll look at this morning to which they both speak. And so the way I want to cover this chapter is through an outline that pulls out the four main elements of this text. And each of these elements are important lessons, not only for the people of Isaiah's day, but for us today, as we seek to be awakened from our spiritual lethargy by God and brought back to right relationship with Him. Now, admittedly, several months ago, I planned out how I was going to preach through the book of Isaiah, at least the first 39 chapters. And wouldn't you know it, that plan didn't even last a week. So we're not going to get all the way through chapter one. I just, I I saw the disappointment on Bob's face this morning when I told him that, and he was, oh, I want to get through chapter one. And quite honestly, man, the songs for today were perfect for the entire chapter. And so he's going to, he's going to do the same ones next week because they're perfect for this chapter. But we're just going to unpack the f- two of the four main elements, and we'll save the remaining two for next week. Thank you for your grace and patience as we work through this book. The first element that we encounter in this chapter is the exhortation to hear. The exhortation, really the command, for us to hear when God speaks. This is an element in chapter 1 to which only Isaiah speaks, and he speaks of it in two different places, and we'll look at both of them, but it's a theme that, quite honestly, we're going to see all throughout the book. And don't we expect that? I mean, this is a 
prophet speaking. That's what prophets do, right? We expect a prophet to say, listen, thus saith the Lord. Isn't that what we expect of a prophet? But here's the danger. Because we expect that, because we expect a prophet to say, the Lord has spoken, so listen to him, we can often brush this off as just preliminary or meaningless formality and miss the significance of it. Church, the Lord has spoken and the Lord is speaking. The question is, are we listening to him? Church, are we listening to when the Lord speaks? Isaiah says in verse 2, Hear, O heavens, give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Yahweh has spoken. And those are commands. Those are imperative verbs. Hear, give an ear, because he has spoken. Again in verse 10, he says, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. And there in verse 10, the people of Judah are compared to the people of Sodom and Gomorrah specifically because they were not listening to their God. They weren't hearing. God was speaking, but they didn't hear. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. What good news this is for us, church. The Lord has Indeed, spoken. He didn't have to. He didn't need to, especially in our sin and rebellion against him. He was under no obligation to reveal himself to us, to speak to us and tell how we approach him and how we live life before him. He was under no obligation to do that, but he did. And the exhortation here is to listen, to to hear, to give ear to what he has said. Now all the people of Isaiah's day had was the word of the prophet himself. Thus saith the Lord. And what do we have? We have all of God's word. We have it written down for us in black and white. God has preserved it throughout the ages so that we can know this is his very word. The Lord has spoken Each and every week, I have the privilege of standing up before God's people and saying, Hear, O people of God, the Lord has spoken. Give ear to Him every day. When you and I wake up and we enter into our devotional reading, the Spirit calls out to us, Hear, O daughter, O son of the King, for the Lord has spoken. Give ear to what He has said. What a precious gift we have in the scriptures. And how often do we forget that and take that for granted by not giving ear to it? I wonder sometimes if we would rather someone like Isaiah just stand up amongst us and say, Thus saith the Lord and give us a fresh word from God. And I think that's why so many today have fallen victim to false teachers who aren't anchored in God's word. God has spoken to us. What a precious gift that is. But we can today, we can rightly say, thus saith the Lord because he's spoken to us in his word. 
And not only has the Lord spoken, but we can also say that the Lord is still speaking. And by that, I don't mean that he's saying new and different things. But I'm saying that he is still speaking to us today from his word. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 4 verse 12 that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Look at the ongoing action that's communicated there by the writer of Hebrews. The Bible is living and active. It's not dead and static. And the Spirit plants the Word of God in us by us reading it, studying it, memorizing it, meditating it, being taught and preached it. And when it's planted in good soil, it keeps working, it keeps piercing, it keeps discerning the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. So brother and sister, the Lord has spoken and he's still speaking from his word. The question is, are you listening? Are you listening? What is the loudest voice in your life? What is the voice that you listen to the most, that influences you the most? What are you giving ear to in your life? If we are going to be awakened, as Isaiah is trying to do, from our spiritual slumber and return to our God, We must be hearing him speak to us. Hear, O heavens, give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. The second main element, and that which we're going to spend the rest of our time on this morning, that we see in chapter 1 is the lamentation of sin. The lamenting of sin. The sin of God's people against their God. This element constitutes the largest portion of this chapter. It's a major theme, of course, throughout the entire book of Isaiah. And it's the only element in chapter 1 to which both the Isaiah and the Lord speak directly. And their lament over Judah's sin is expressed in two ways. I want to, I want to cover them in depth. First, he, he expresses his lament over Judah's sin by describing the incomprehensibility of sin. The incomprehensibility of of God's people sinning against their God. The insanity of that. And then secondly, he expresses that lament by giving us pictures of the consequences of sin. So so first, we see the incomprehensibility of sin. Given who God is, and given who we are in light of God, it makes no sense for us to rebel against Him. It is incomprehensible. It is inconceivable. The Lord Himself first expresses this, beginning in the second half of verse 2. He says, Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. And so the father not only chose these people as his own inheritance, he not only chose them to be his children, but he raised them up. He reared them. He he brought them up. He he delivered them out of the famine in Canaan and, and, and provided for them down in Egypt. 
a few centuries later, after that had gone bad, he, he then delivered them out of slavery in Egypt through the Red Sea into the promised land. But still, still they rebelled against him. It's incomprehensible, inconceivable. In verse 3, he attributes their sin to no longer knowing him. He says, the ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. The word know there in Hebrew, yada, it's covenant language. And it's reminiscent of God's covenant knowledge of Israel as his chosen people. And they're in turn covenantally knowing him as their God, as their Lord. Oxen were considered to be among the most unintelligent of beasts. And donkeys were considered to be the most stubborn. And together they're often used in scripture to refer to people who are incredibly obtuse and stubborn with respect to their relationship with God. And even the ox would not be so obtuse as to fail to recognize who his owner is and do what his owner says. And the donkey, though famous for his stubbornness, would not be so stubborn as to run away from the source of his protection and provision in his master's crib. God's people sinning against their God is incomprehensible. It is a form of insanity. And the only reason that they would do that is because they have forgotten who he is. And they've begun to live life as if they no longer know him as their God. Isaiah even seems to be exasperated with Judah's sin as he asks in verse 5, Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? Why will you be struck down? And in other words, because of the consequences and effects of sin, why would you keep doing that? He asks. It's as if the people are beating their head against the wall over and over and over again. And Isaiah says, why are you doing that? Don't you see you're causing a massive headache? Don't you see the bruise forming? The blood beginning to drip? Stop. For goodness sake, stop. It's insanity to keep doing that. And I think that's an important reminder for us that when we sin against God, it just makes no sense. If we would only stop and recognize our master and see who he is and recognize who we are in light of that, we're just worms. We might lay aside our stubbornness and return to our God. But so often, instead, we just keep beating our head against the wall. Insanity. But then it seems as though in an effort to try to help the reader come to grips with the true insanity of their sin, Isaiah and the Lord give a number of pictures of this insanity by showing the effects and the consequences of their rebellion against God, what it's doing in their life. Five pictures in particular of the consequences of Judah's sin. But I think we're going to recognize these very same consequences for us today and in our own culture and society as well. So five pictures of sin's consequences on Judah. First, he gives them a picture of a beaten body. 
in verses 5 and 6. A beaten body. He says the whole head is sick. The whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head. There is no soundness in it, but rather bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. In other words, don't you see what you're doing, Judah? You're beating yourself up. You're wounding yourself with your own sin. Sin ravages our life with consequences. Friend, don't you know that? Sin ravages our life with consequences. Like, like we're in a boxing match and we're going round after round after round with a prize fighter. Oblivious to the fact that we're getting pummeled over and over and over again. We just keep going back in. Keep going back in. It's insanity. We're beating ourselves up. Why do that to ourselves, Isaiah asks. The second picture that he gives here is that of a besieged city in verses 7 and 8. In these verses, Isaiah is giving Judah a, a, a prophetic picture of Judah, the southern kingdom, overrun and defeated by its enemies. So this hasn't happened yet. So it's, so it's a picture of what will happen if they don't stop. This is what's going to happen. This is what it's leading to if they keep doing this. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard. So it's vulnerable, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. Don't believe the lie that sin only affects you. Sin doesn't just affect you. It affects those who are around you. It affects people that you love that are around you. It puts them in danger makes them vulnerable to attack. The consequences of sin spread out. They spread out to the people around you that you love. So why would you do that? Isaiah says, it's insane. Stop. Just stop. Third picture comes from verse 9. It is the picture of complete and utter destruction. Here, Judah is compared to Sodom and Gomorrah who received complete and utter destruction as a result of their sin. And he says, If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. In other words, because of her sin and rebellion against God, what Judah deserved was complete and utter destruction like Sodom and Gomorrah received. And that's what would happen to Judah. All of Judah. All of her cities. 100% gone. That's what would happen if. And that word if is the first hint of the hope of redemption in the book of Isaiah. The hope of, of potential rescue and escape from what we deserve. He says, if the Lord had not left us a few survivors. This is the first hint of hope in the book of Isaiah, that their covenant God would not, in fact, completely and utterly destroy them, but would save a remnant, a few survivors from among them, from whom he would eventually bring his son, the servant, the Messiah. But this complete destruction is what, I, is what Judah deserved and what Judah would get apart from God's redeeming grace. 
And so he says, why would you keep doing that, which causes you to deserve complete and utter destruction? It's insanity. It's incomprehensible. The fourth picture comes from the Lord himself, as in verses 11 through 15, he gives us the picture of the vanity of empty religion. And some of God's strongest words of condemnation in the book, certainly in this chapter, come from this passage where he talks about the vanity of empty religion. He says, beginning in verse 11, What to me is a multitude of your sacrifices? Put all your sacrifices together. What is that to me? What is that to me? All that you have to offer God, you bring to me. What is that to me? He says, I've had enough. I've had enough of all this stuff that you bring to me. Now, this is stuff that was required by the law. The burnt offerings of bulls, rams, and goats, this is required by the Mosaic law. And the Lord says, I've had enough of it. I don't delight in the blood of bulls and goats and lambs and, and goats. When you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Because it's empty, you bring these animals before me, it's just trampling my courts. That's all it is. I've had enough of it. He says, bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. This is harsh. New moons and Sabbath and calling and convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. You want to know something that God can't do? He cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. He can't endure it. No more. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates them. They've become a burden to me, and I am weary of bearing them. The Lord is tired of enduring their empty religion. And in verse 15, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you, even though you make many prayers. I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Now, this is not saying that worship or religious observances is bad or wrong in any way whatsoever. But it is the vanity of going through the motions of simply an outward display of worship and religious observances that he cannot stand while holding on to sin coming into God's presence and going through the motions of, of, of worship to Yahweh while holding on to sin, embracing our rebellion and refusing to let it go. God says, I hate that. It's an abomination to me. I think the key of this section is in two places. First, at the end of verse 13, when he says, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly it is the combination of those two things it's not the solemn assembly it, it, it's that you're coming with your iniquity for everyone to see continuing to embrace it and yet you're coming to the solemn assembly and then also at the end of verse 15 where he says i'm going to hide my eyes from you i'm no, no longer going to listen to your prayers why because your hands are full of blood it is the insanity of sin that makes us think that we can impress God with our presence or somehow put on a little Wizard of Oz show for God 
Oh God, look at my sacrifices, look at my worship, look at my, my offerings of praise, God, but, but, but pay no attention to the sin behind the curtain. But God says, if you want to hold on to your sin and come into my presence and worship, you have missed the whole point of worship. Worship without repentance is hypocrisy. It's vanity, it's empty, it's pointless. You see, sin is insurrection against our king. That's what sin is. It's insurrection against our king. And if we come into his presence, into the presence of this king, hoping that our worship, our sacrifices, the things that we do for him is somehow going to cover over that insurrection, that's insanity. And so Isaiah says, stop it. Stop it. Don't keep going on with this charade, he says. If you want to keep on sinning, just keep on sinning, but, but don't come in here and pretend it's not there. The vanity of empty religion. And, and this is going to be a heavy theme that's continued all throughout the book. And I think it's a heavy theme for us to continue to return to ourselves. Are we coming to just put on a show? Are we coming to just walk through, go through the motions of, of an outward display of worship? Are we trying to offer what we can to our God in hopes that he will pay no attention to our sin? There is no covering for our sin in that way, but only through the blood of Jesus Christ. The fifth picture that we have of sin here and the consequences of sin is the corruption of the city and her leaders. The corruption of the city and her leaders is what this is what Isaiah is lamenting about in verses 21 through 23. See, sin stains not only the sinner, and it stains not only those around us whom we love, but it has consequences on the culture itself. It corrupts the cities we live in and even the leaders who govern them. Look, beginning at verse 21 and following, note, note here the transforming effect of sin. It takes what is good and it corrupts it. How the faithful city has become a whore. She who was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross. Your best wine is now mixed with, wa with water. The, the, the value of silver was diminished by the presence of impurities or dross. And so this is talking about, uh, about what is good and what is beautiful and it being corrupted by sin. Verse 23, your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Again, what it was good has been corrupted. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless and the widow's cause does not come before them. The good, the good effect that the leaders were supposed to have on culture and society aren't having that effect anymore because they've been corrupted by sin. Sin corrupts everything, including the very cities that we live in. 
and including those who are called to govern and lead them. This is true in Judah's day, and don't we know it is also true of our day as well? And so Isaiah and the Lord himself lament this. That's what all of this is. This is a lamentation of sin. They lament the insanity of sin and they lament the effect and its consequences on everyone and everything in life. And so should we. We should lament sin in our own lives, in our brothers' and sisters' lives, in the world itself. And we should lament sin's effect in corrupting us, in corrupting the people around us, and in corrupting society itself. There is absolutely nothing in life that is unaffected by the corruption and stain of the sins of man. And that is sad. And that is lamentable. But do we ever truly lament over sin? To lament means to express deep sorrow or grief over something that is wrong or bad. It's a synonym to mourning. But I fear that in Christian circles today, and perhaps even in our own hearts, instead of lamenting sin, we excuse sin. We overlook it. We rationalize it by comparing it to the really bad sins of someone else. And in increasing measure, we avoid talking about it. And we even refuse to call it sin when that's what it clearly is. But Isaiah and the Lord here in the first chapter of this book lament it. They express deep sadness and sorrow over it. Exasperation because of it. And the insanity of God's people giving themselves to it. Thomas Watson famously wrote, Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Unless we are brought to the place of lamenting over our sin, where we hate it and it disgusts us, we will not long for and find solace in the cross of Christ and the grace that is available through the Lord Jesus crucified and risen. This quote of Watson's comes from his classic book, The Doctrine of Repentance. And I highly commend that book to you as a tool to help you and help us learn how to lament rightly over sin. Because true and deep and genuine repentance comes from a heart that laments over sin rather than caresses it. In that book, Watson develops this thought further, and I just want to share a brief snippet with you. He says, quote, Confession must be, must be sincere. Our hearts must go along with our confessions. The hypocrite confesses sin but loves it. Like a thief who confesses to stolen goods, yet loves stealing. How many confess pride and covetousness with their lips, but roll them as honey under their tongue? 
He goes on to say, Augustine said that before his conversion, he confessed sin and begged for power against it, but his heart whispered within, within him, not yet, Lord. He was afraid to leave his sin too soon. He goes on to say, a good Christian is more honest. His heart keeps pace with his tongue. He is convinced of the sins he confesses, and he abhors the sin he is convinced of. To summarize Watson there and to summarize this lamentation of sin that we see in this first chapter, we will not be brought to true and deep and genuine repentance without a deep sorrow of and lament over our sin against God. We must see the insanity of it, the incongruency of God's people sinning against his God. And we are to feel the vileness of it, the depravity of it. We are to be brought to the point of mourning and the point of disgust over it if we are to be brought to a place of genuine repentance. But this repentance that is spoken of, and it's alluded to in this chapter, is not an emotional feeling but rather it is an active turning. You see, repentance, true repentance, is not passive, it's active. Which is why Isaiah will follow up this lamentation of sin with two remaining elements in this chapter that we'll cover next week. Namely, first, the command to repent, to return, to actively, not passively, turn from our sin and turn back to God. And then lastly, the promise of judgment if we don't repent and don't turn back to him and in these last two elements main elements from this first chapter we will uncover the first foretaste of the gospel in isaiah an unmistakable reference to the to the need that we have for god to rescue us because we can't rescue ourselves but that's next week for now the exhortation from Isaiah, from the Lord, is to hear because God has spoken to us. And we are provoked to lament over our sin. But in our lamentation, we don't have to wait till next week to know that God has made provision for our sin problem. And that provision is the Lord Jesus, the suffering servant that Isaiah will speak of, who would come and live for us and die in our place so that those who trust in Christ alone would be forgiven and rescued from deserved judgment. And so, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, I pray that this morning, at this very moment, you would feel the weight and the burden and the guilt and the seriousness of your own sin and rebellion against God so much that you are brought to a place of true repentance and faith in Christ as your only hope. And if you do know Christ this morning, I pray that you and I would commit ourselves to hear God speak to us in his word and to lament of our sins so much that we would be brought to deep, true, and regular repentance and be reminded afresh of the glorious grace that is ours in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We're thankful 
for this reminder that you have spoken to us. Lord, forgive us for taking that for granted. You have spoken. Sometimes we we long for you to speak into our lives, but you have spoken. We want to know what your will is for our lives, but you've spoken. We want to know if if, if we should go this way or that way, but you've spoken. We want to know how to live a life that honors you, and you've spoken to us. We want to know who you are, and you've spoken to us. God, would you do whatever you have to do in our hearts, in our spirits, to evoke in us a resolve to hear you speak, and that this year, this year, would be marked as no other, that this would be a year that we hear you speak as we never have before, and that our lives would be in alignment with what we see in your word. You've spoken, Lord. Draw us to hear. Give us the ears that will hear. And Lord, we know that in our sin, it is such a travesty. It is so easy for us to gloss over our sin and not feel the weight and the burden of them and not lament over them. Father, how could we ever be brought to true repentance if we are not deeply moved by the depravity of our own hearts? God, I pray that we would, in this year, we would be marked out as a people who lament over our sin and the sins of the people around us and the sins of the world in which we live, and that we would point to Jesus as our only hope. The provision has been made. Lord, make that truth resound in the life of the unbeliever in this moment that though their sin is great, his grace is more. That they can call on the name of Jesus Christ, turn from their sin and trust in him and be saved and be rescued. That his righteousness might become theirs. And that their crimson stain would be made white as snow. Father, we pray that we would be a people who would be marked out as lamenting our sin and pointing to the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.